Nancy Rothstein, welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm so appreciative that you've taken time to speak with us. You are a globally recognized sleep expert, the sleep ambassador. You're here because you are the author of Rising in the Morning, Ways to Celebrate Life. And I really want to emphasize morning is spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. The book was published by Waterside Productions just last fall. The origins of this book come from October of 2002, when your son Joshua, who was then just 15 years old, lost his life after being struck by a car while walking on a sidewalk. So let's start at that place and talk about Joshua and the light that he was in your life. To you, your family, community, talk about him and and please bring him right here into this conversation. Oh, he's so much a part of this conversation. This young lad, Josh, accomplished so much in 15 and a half years. You know, it's unfortunate, Stephanie, that sometimes it's in death that you learn more about people. I knew in my heart that this boy was extraordinarily precious. I remember when he was about eight or nine and we were in San Francisco, a homeless person was on the street and he said, I have to just stop for a minute. I have to go help him. He was a light. He was so precious to his sisters. He was a wonderful human being. But rising in the morning brings his voice to life again. I'm so excited about it and that I have the grace and almost the assignment to bring his wisdom, which is enduring, which transcends breath and heartbeat. Your guest that I listened to on one of your podcasts, he said, it's the very fact that we're going to die that impels us to live. This was Rabbi Leader. Mm -hmm. And Kafka said, the meaning of life is that it ends. You know, nobody wants to talk about this topic. And even though this book was born of Josh's death, the book is about embracing life while we still have a heartbeat and our breath. Even amid total chaos, total grief, total anguish, and I've been at all of those, but my heart's still beating. I have read numerous books about end of life and grief, and I have talked to so many people about this topic. Your particular affirmation of life after tragedy and challenge has touched me and moved me and given me comfort that knowing you truly has elevated my life when it comes to this conversation. So I have to ask you, what was that moment when you decided to write the book? When Josh actually died, I just started to recognize that there was a story to tell. I didn't know how it would evolve. I will tell you while I was working on it, it was tough. It wasn't reliving it. It was revisiting it. And some of the stuff I wrote, it's like Josh's heart took its last beat for the first time. A friend had made a necklace with Josh's picture, one of my favorite pictures. And every day it was sitting there and every day I would put on the necklace to bring him with me because that's really who I needed. I needed to bring in Josh more than anything. And I was looking up at the lake from my view in my 24th floor apartment in Chicago. 
And then I just knew, I just kept going. You just said you were not reliving, you were revisiting. What did you mean by that? I don't sit and think back, oh, you know, when he was hit. I don't relive all that. I revisited it because I needed to. I was writing about it or Mm -hmm. I had written about it and I was editing or checking. I was witnessing it. I was observing it. I wasn't back into the depths of the pain and the anguish and the hell. Somebody said to me after he died, the only way out of it is to go through it. Her other way of saying that was, if you feel like you're in hell, keep walking. Hmm. And I think the rabbi that I mentioned that you had had on a podcast said something about, if you're going through hell, at least come out with something. I had compassion for myself and for anybody involved, especially my ex-husband. Like for many people, this was just almost too much to bear. You write that our soul expresses itself through our body. There is no birth of the soul. There is no death of the soul. Where did all of this come from, that level of spirituality? To say that, that is a very profound statement. Talk about that for a moment. Well, I'm not going to give myself credit for it luminaries from the Buddha to the Dalai Lama to to Deepak Chopra to Rabbi Dr. Douglas Goldhammer, with whom I studied Kabbalah for 15 years till he passed away. I had teachers, but this was percolating in me as a child. I just didn't know what it was. No, it wasn't like I had visions or I saw ghosts and all that kind of stuff. But I was just in my own little world sometimes. I started Transcendental Meditation in 1972, after my freshman year in college. And I knew when I stood up to give Josh's eulogy, at that moment, everything I'd done for 30 years before that meditating was helping me see things a little differently and helping me navigate this whole thing a little differently. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not human beings having a spiritual experience. That's a biggie. I just knew. I mean, Josh is like, Josh is, he continues. His soul continues. I mean, there's lots in religious texts about this. So when you talk about the spirituality, it's clear, or maybe not, that Jewish ritual around death and grief played a a big role for you in, in this and in your life today. Yes, it did. When you experience a shiva, in the depths of darkness, in the depths of loss. And you've got, I mean, there were a thousand people at Josh's funeral. We were 300 kids from his school, you know, whatever. But when you experience that, it makes you so grateful for our traditions. That's one of my few regrets raising my children. I didn't light the Shabbat candles every Friday. I should have done it. We could have had Christian friends over, Jewish friends, whatever, but I didn't do it. Now I do. When people say we're not sitting Shiva, it happened recently to a friend because they weren't even having a funeral. And I was like, maybe you can find something to do to honor your brother, just so there's some connection to something that's bigger than this. And And at the end of Shiva, the seven days for us, to walk around the block was probably one of the most profound experiences as a family we ever had. At Plaza, we do about 50 educational programs a year all around Jewish ritual at the end of life. And we talk about that moment 
what a family does to end the morning process for those seven days is to take a walk around the block. When we put one foot in front of the other and move in a forward direction. Even though you come back home. Even though you come back home. Because that's where your heart is. That's where you are. Because home's there and you've got it. You're going to keep putting your feet forward. Some days better than others. Mm -hmm. I never spent a day in bed where I couldn't get up. Somebody said to me, if you can get up and feed your other children, you're doing really well. And then another woman, the first Mother's Day, this is October. So the first Mother's Day in May, a neighbor dropped off three roses and said, you always be the mother of three. She gave me permission So when people say, how many children do you have? It depends on the circumstance. I generally say three, and we see where it goes from there. Whereas a friend whose daughter completed suicide says, I have two living children. So nobody asks for more. Amazing how everyone addresses this and speaks the language that speaks to them in those moments. I want to talk about the sound of silence. After Josh's death, I know that song came to you, and it literally became a guiding force for you in life. It was not so much the song. It was what happened because of the song. Okay. We were doing Shiva, and my chiropractor came to pay a call. I said, Warren, can you just come adjust me? So I went on the bench at the foot of our bed. While he was adjusting me, I said, you know, I just don't want to fall into an abyss of darkness. And I'm laying there and I hear, hello, darkness, my old friend, I've come to talk with you again. And at that moment, I saw light in the darkness in every sense of the word. And I knew that no matter how dark it was, that there was still a light. You can go in a cave and it's pitch black and you can light a candle, you can rub two stones together, you can bring a flashlight you can put light in the darkness. But if you're outside, and whether it's gloomy or sunny, you cannot obliterate the light. You can put something over you. You can close your eyes and put this mask on. But that was where the hope was for me, that you could never obliterate the light. And I knew in that moment that there would be light in the darkness. And there has been. Oh, yeah. In big ways, in beautiful ways in your life that you've shared with me. Before we get there, let's talk about this shattering the wall of death. I think it's an example that people need to think about. It's vivid, vivid imagery. You talk about it so clearly in the book, and I really want you to talk about that. Joshua had severe food allergies, peanuts, all nuts, shellfish. It wasn't pretty. He had seven anaphylactic reactions. No EpiPen, no life. We are always on a precipice. Everybody had to be vigilant about making sure. I mean, when we traveled overseas, we had instructions in other languages at restaurants. We had to be so careful. Seven, seven EpiPens. And then when he died, one of the women that I had gotten to know from a board I was on in New York called the Food Allergy Initiative said to me, at least you know he's safe now. Now, only somebody else with a child on the precipice of death, if they eat the wrong thing, could say that to you. But it was so profound. So what happened was, I it's in chapter three, page 19. It was before the funeral and the girls were up late and we were writing our eulogies. 
And all of a sudden I say, I knew with crystal clarity that Josh was not gone, that he was in a new place, a place unfamiliar to me, but accessible in ways that would unfold. Somehow inexplicable in words, yet unquestionably, the wall of death had shattered. And what remained were fragments of a wall I had erected nearly 20 years earlier. That is a wall of fear that you're of your child dying that every parent feels on some level at some time. This wall of death, the unthinkable that couldn't possibly happen, that plea, please, God, no, keep my child safe and healthy. Every parent feels this sensation, kept remote for some, and for others, it hangs as a daily constant. And I wrote later, in this shattering, I would come to know life again. In this continuum, I would gain freedom. In this freedom, Josh and I could continue to communicate clearly, often filling me with amazement and always delivering hope, joy, and wisdom. It goes on to say, while Josh taught me much in life, as children are always the best of teachers, in his death, Josh continued to illuminate my living days. Don't get me wrong, everybody. This was not fun. This has been horrible at times. And it's not like Josh comes up to me and starts talking. Sometimes I apologize to him because I haven't, except every night I hold a stone and I connect to him before I go to sleep. But it's not like, hey, every, you know, Josh is always talking to me. If you read this book, you're going to see he sends plenty of messages. He's there. Talk to me about that stone for a second. Is that stone a special stone? It's actually, as a sleep expert, one of the things I teach people is to go to gratitude before sleep, especially if they're full of thoughts. Everything can be awful going on. You can do two things. You can go to gratitude. Maya Angelou said, let gratitude be the pillow upon which you kneel to say your nightly prayers. Well, if you don't do prayers, just say upon which you are grateful. And then thank your heart for beating. So that's my gratitude stone. And I have over the last number of years, inevitably every night I touch it and think of Josh. And I think of him all, you know, all the time, but it's not like I pocket away, you know, I, I carve out times. Okay, it's Josh time. I probably should. But he like, he's all, you know, this is his voice. I'm just the vehicle. The farther away you get from 2002, do you worry about losing memories? One of the first things I realized after Josh died was I was getting farther and farther away from the last memory created with him. So there wouldn't be any new memories. And then in the last number of months, I had this epiphany where I thought, wait a minute, there are new memories, either things people shared with me that I didn't know, which still come up. There are new memories in how I respect and keep his legacy enduring. There are new memories in revisiting things. But no, there's no new memories of him. If you are young and you lose a parent or a sibling when you're young and you don't, you know, we hear this, I don't even remember my father. I was six. Find something to connect or have somebody else help you with their memories. Everybody out there, one of the most beautiful things you can do for another human being is when somebody they love passes and even somebody you met once but have a memory, find them, reach out to them, 
Those are the pearls, the gems, the diamonds that you give to people who may not know that story. It's so gorgeous. That is so important to hear because we in the community don't know what we can do in those moments. And I thank you so much for sharing that because now I know what I can do to help someone. Somebody said to me, I ran into her at a water polo match for now. And she said, oh, I knew I was going to run into you. I feel so bad. I've had a card for you sitting on my kitchen counter for months. And I just don't know what to say. And I said to her, not for me, but for the next person, just write the card right away and just say, I don't know what to say, but I want you to know I care and send it. You're so right. Would you say that your spirituality now is on a different level than it used to be? It's not different. It's evolved. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of articles. In fact, I just ordered the book. It just came yesterday about awe. There have been a few articles in the New York Times and one in the Atlantic about awe stemming from this book. I am in awe of life. I'm in awe of the trillions of cells in my body. As the sleep ambassador, I'm totally in awe of sleep. I hope there's anybody, you know, change one person, change the world. I hope there's somebody who listens to this or who reads the book and suddenly they say, well, maybe there is more than I thought there was. I'm willing to entertain this or the person who says, this is too sad for me. Look, I had a friend read it. She thought it was, she said, I, it was wonderful. I read it at Miraval. Who, you know, reading my book at Miraval is awful. <laughs> then there's other people. Another woman said she has a lot of issues with law. She said, I bought the book because she wrote it. I felt I had to. And then I opened randomly to a page and I thought, I want to read this. And then she opened to another page and it was the last stanza of a poem. And she said, I need to read this. The book is born of a death, but it's about embracing life even amidst the challenge while we still have a heartbeat and breath. You say that word heartbeat a lot. I think that's just totally going to resonate with people because as we're so busy thinking about the grief and the loss, we need to look back at ourselves and know that we have a heartbeat. I need to give an ode to my daughter, Natalie, who's 32 and a, a psychotherapist. And she called me this morning knowing I was doing this and said, can I just, do you have space for me to make a suggestion? I said, I always have space for you. And she said, <laughs> you know, mom, you wrote this book. You're pretty incredible about how you look at all this, but there's going to be people who are so in a state of loss and grief that this is all just, they can't even relate to all this. You have to feel your feelings. Every feeling you have deserves to be honored. I was in the depths of darkness, even though I saw the light, so to speak. Honor your feelings, but at the same time, if you can find a modicum of hope, even the possibility of hope, and it's not that's what your loved one would want. It's not that. You're here on earth and it sucks. And you feel awful and you're sad and you can barely eat. Just get up and take five steps. And if you can't take five steps, take five steps in your mind. Go to something, some memory that gave you the feeling of joy or peace. So you know it's even possible to feel like that. I want you to share at the funeral, at the graveside, at the cemetery, what happened. The poem Nancy Rothstein, it's probably one of the most profound things I've ever heard when you shared that with me. 
Josh was hit on the October 6th and died on the 7th, which is sort of great lighting a yard site candle because you light it on the 6th, it burns to the 7th, and it's very poetic because to me it's both days. So it's April 6th. It's a blustery Chicago day. I'm sitting on one of those soccer mom fold-up chairs that I have at his grave. I had never brought it, and I'd never brought my journal. And I was just blustery cold with my coat around me. And Natalie called me. She said, Mommy, can I sing you a song? And she sings me Mandy Moore's Only Hope about reaching to the galaxies. And she's just 11. That's done. And I'm pleading with God, pleading for guidance because we're all in different directions and we're all just grieving completely differently. And I'm just asking for guidance. And all of a sudden, I put my pen on the page. So this is as pure as it comes, crystal clear in my journal from Josh. You hope I sleep in peace. I do. But I'm awake. I come to you. That bird you hear, that wind that blows, are signs I send to help you know that I continue where I am, that life continues in God's hands. For death was only on the path to life anew that forever lasts. Along the journey, lessons learned, knowledge sought, and voices heard. Yet you must know that in the end, it is love's garden you must tend. The only reason I wrote this poem down, the only reason I heard him was because I was present. If I hadn't noticed the birds, if I hadn't felt the wind, I would never have been able to hear this poem. And that is in my 21 Ways to Celebrate Life, another communication. Yet you must know that in the end, it is love's garden you must tend. That is the beginning, the middle, the end. That's the whole ball game of life is love. It's all about love. And in both of the podcasts of yours I listened to, that came. Sometimes we don't feel very loving. Sometimes we don't feel very loved. But it is the highest vibration. It is the purity of the universe. It is there. So love your heartbeat. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your beautiful son sharing your beautiful sense of spirit, of heart with all of us. We, of course, will include information about Rising in the Morning in the show notes of this episode. Nancy Rothstein, you're a gift, and I thank you for being on Exit Strategy. And I am so honored and grateful to be here with you. Well, tonight I can tell you this. When I go to sleep, I'm going to make sure I have a gratitude list going on in my head. Even one thing. Okay, one thing it'll be. Thank you. Thank you. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there. So if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy.